There's a question that's given. The question is, what is the greatest marvel? The question is answered. Each day, death strikes, and we live as though we were immortal. This is the greatest marvel. I believe that one of the qualities that characterizes human beings is that we know that we're mortal, that we know that we will die, and that even though often we live or we act as though we won't, somewhere in us we actually know that that's true. We know that our life here is uh, temporary, that our time here with this body and in this form is limited. And I believe that consciously or unconsciously, this truth impacts us very much. Not only do we know somewhere, we really know that we're going to die, but also we know that everybody we love, care about, meet, that they too will die. In Buddhist practice, the reflection on death, Maranasati, is a very important practice. It's a very important reflection. It's given in the teachings on mindfulness. The Buddha gives the, I believe it's nine uh, cemetery or charnel ground contemplations for us. And then in other texts and commentaries, it's emphasized and re-emphasized in all the Buddhist traditions in all the various lineages and schools. So that if you go to the Zen Center in Green, at Green Gulch or in San Francisco or Tassajara, and you go to practice there, the way you're called to practice is they hit a big wooden slab, beautiful block of wood, and they bang it, and they go... And on this piece of wood is written, Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes quickly and is swiftly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. And it's very powerful to be called to practice with that Because what you see is there's a nice wooden mallet that they hit the, the han, it's called, with. And slowly, over time, there starts to be a hole 
the words get faded, and then at a certain point they actually break through the Han, and the Han dies, and then there's a new Han that's born. Same words are written. So I would like to talk about death and grief and loss and share with you some reflections from my own experience, from the Buddhist teachings. And I've spoken about this a bit at different times, done workshops here, other places, partly because of my work. For many years, I was a grief counselor. Uh, I worked in an agency called the Cancer Support Community. It was actually started by Ken Wilber's wife, who was had cancer and died of cancer. Um, I also worked in another agency where I was the HIV AIDS counselor. And I've spent many years associated with the Zen Hospice Project, first as a volunteer, then training other volunteers as a teacher there. And that's given me a little bit of understanding. But I think more I'd like to also speak from my personal experience, from my own experience of death and grief. And so you'll notice I have my father up here tonight, who died um, a little over two months ago now. This is uh, Sam. Here's a Zen story. It said a rich man asked Sengai to write something for the continued prosperity of his family so that it might be treasured from generation to generation. Sengai wrote, Father dies, son dies, grandson dies. And the rich man became angry with him at this. He said, why do you make such a joke, a bad joke? And Sengai said, no joke is intended. If before you yourself die, your son should die, this would grieve you greatly. And if your grandson should pass away before your son, both of you would be brokenhearted. If your family, generation after generation, passes away in the order I have named, it will be the natural course of things, of life. I call this true prosperity. And so, when I speak about my dad's death and some of my experiences, I'm speaking from the perspective of true prosperity. That so far, we have been blessed. I don't know if that's the right word or not, but blessed that nobody's died out of order. My grandfather died. My father died. Hopefully, I'll die before my daughter dies. And I'll tell you a little bit about my dad and talk about his dying and the grieving process and how it might relate to our practice here. 
But I want to just clarify, I'm, I'm describing a very uncomplicated grief. And I'll talk a little bit about the difference, but really, for myself, um, I didn't have a lot of stuff with my dad. He died in the right order, as I said. Um, he was 91. You know, it's like kind of as good as it gets in a certain way. And he was old. I mean, 91's old. It's really kind of amazing to watch him get so old, because I remember him as a quite a vital young man. And I saw him, too, as I said, the last time I saw him was two weeks before he died. And I'd seen him a number of times over the last year. And he was tired of living. It's like the body just kept, keeps telling us and at some point, you know, you're not going to stay around forever. It's not so much fun at a certain point. The body, his body, started to go in many, many different ways. Although even, the, even when I saw him two weeks before he died, he was still in an independent living situation. So as I say, this is a really good death and, and life situation that he was dealing with. Um, but his body, his eyes were failing, his ears were failing, it was hard for him to hear, his memory was sure failing a lot. Um, his arms weren't working so well, he couldn't lift them too high. His fingers were cracking, so he, he had trouble buttoning buttons, putting on his clothes. He was starting to uh, become more incontinent. He couldn't control his bladder or his bowels so well. His feet and lower legs were swollen. It's what happens to bodies if they live long enough. And so he was actually ready to go. He'd been saying for a while, maybe a year, year and a half, I've had it. This, this picture is a good example. He said, oh, enough already. Enough, really. It's, it's a good, good view of him and how he felt. And he didn't, and it was hard because so many people he knew had died already. And just a little background, he, he was a very simple man, my father, very unsophisticated, really grew up in another time, another world. He, uh, I think he left school when he was 14 to work in his father's grocery store and then ended up having this Ma and Pa grocery store his whole life. And worked hard and, you know, married three, three sons. And kind of work, family, community, that was his whole life. He didn't know much else. Um, and he was a good guy, really a good guy, very sweet man. Uh, when I think about the best parts of him, um, I think about two things. One, that he was kind of a game for life, the life that his sons brought him into. Because we went in all different ways, and especially in the 60s, we went and did all kinds of stuff. And he would show up everywhere that we were. You know, communes, there wasn't a door on the bathroom, he'd just put up a blanket so he felt comfortable. You know, he, uh, 
I was doing radical political street theater, and we came through Detroit. It was called Guerrilla Theater at that time. We came through Detroit where I grew up, and uh, he and my mom came. And just to give you a sense, we were being hosted by the weathermen, okay, if you knew who the weathermen were. So it was kind of, we were a little bit on the fringe. And he came and we did this performance and had a great party with the weathermen. It was before they'd, they went underground, actually. And uh, we had a great time. And he had a great time. And I was really surprised I didn't quite know him like this. And, and uh, the next day I talked to him. I said, how was it? He said, oh, it was great. It was great. The theater was wonderful and you had so much fun. Everybody's having a good time. Why do you got to say all that stuff about the government? That kind of sums him up really well. And you know, the the other piece that I'll just say is that he he never gave up on me or any of his kids, no matter what we did. And that was that's quite a blessing. Really, that he, we, we, there's nothing we could do to stop him from loving us. That, that's quite something, and I'll be eternally grateful for that. In some way, I feel like that, that taught me a lot, that in some way he exemplified uh, really what I think of as the best of the Dharma in that sense. And, and I think of it this way, that the Dharma will never give up on us. You ever notice that? You ever notice how, no matter how long you've been lost, or wandered, or confused, the moment you're here, you're always accepted by the Dharma. There's no refusing you, because, you know, we, I could say this, not exactly in the Buddhist text, but the Dharma loves you. He wasn't particularly spiritual at all. He did have one leg- spiritual legacy that he gave directly. This is a kind of, um, again, an unsophisticated but Jewish cultural heritage, which was be a mensch. And be a mensch, mensch is a Yiddish word. Literally, it means man, but it's much more than that. It really means... Be a person with integrity. Be a person who, you know, really can uh, live up to their word, that treats people fairly, things like that. And it was really a good, um, a good teaching for me, still a good teaching for me. And if you look closely at, um, at Buddhist teaching and really all religions, they all encourage us to be a mensch. And it doesn't matter about if you're a man or women can be mensches too. It's not, it's not separated out that way. And, and to have a, that kind of integrity is really the condition of having no part or element taken away. You're really there. And you're really willing to be there for life, for the world, for yourself, for one another. In, in the dictionary, it says, undivided state, an integral whole. 
And then I, this really surprised me. It said, original perfect state. In a moral sense, free from moral corruption, a kind of innocence. And I think that's a really beautiful expression of awakening. You know, and we know it in Buddhism in the five precepts of non-harming. But it's also in our presence, in our willingness to be present with life fully and respond with our hearts kindly, carefully. I see it as one of the various expressions of awakening itself, the image. And I see it partly as my dad's expression of his Buddha nature. Dogen writes a poem, he says, the true person, not anyone, the true person is not anyone in particular, but like the deep blue color of the limitless sky, it is everyone, everywhere in the world. People don't have to be Buddhists for, we, for us to see their nature. It's everyone, everywhere in the world. The first reflection and the awareness of death is that everyone has to die. So just sit with that a minute, with that reflection that truth. Everyone has to die. Sometimes people think, I, I think it's a little misunderstanding, I've had it at times, that when we understand a truth, that's all there is to it. Then we're done with it. Okay, I get it. Everyone has to die. And so knowing that, we're not going to have any feelings about it or reactions or responses. And that I haven't seen that that's the way it is. I don't think that this truth denies our grief. Excuse me. I think that our grief is part of this truth. Knowing that everyone has to die doesn't deny my grief about my father's death, my missing him, my love for him. There's a story from Ryokan, who was a Zen monk, who had a, it said, platonic relationship with a nun half his age near the end of his life. And there's beautiful poems of their love for one another. And at the end, he's dying. And she wrote this poem. She said, We monastics are said to overcome the realm of life and death. Yet I cannot bear the sorrow of our parting. I think that's much more the truth of it, the way it is. When I, Ajahn Sumedho was here this year, and he, uh, he's a wonderful fellow to get to hang out with a little, to talk to. 
I got to spend time with him in a number of different settings. And at one point we were talking about grief and he started talking about his grief. And I, John Sumato, if you don't know, is maybe one of the senior American monastics in the world was with Jack with Ajahn Chah and um, heads up a number of monasteries in England. And he started talking about his grief, that his parents had died in the last 10 years and he'd been grieving them and that friends had died as he's gotten older and he was grieving them. That uh, his upachara, his benefactor died. That was a great loss to him. And he said he always finds it so funny that people come up and they say, oh, you're a Buddhist monk, you're not supposed to grieve. He said it, it just doesn't, doesn't quite register. He, says he, he tells them, he said, look, this is a world of loss. Grief is the appropriate response to loss. Of course I'm going to grieve. And then, and then he, this was kind of as almost a throwaway line as he was talking, but it was in Buddhist practice, we call it the, the insight line or the wisdom line. At this, talking about his grief, talking about how appropriate it is, how natural it is, how it makes total sense. And then right at the end, he said, of course, I'm not attached to my grief. And you just got it. The grief comes, it's natural. It's what happens when we love people and care about people. And it changes. Even so far, in, in a few months, I've watched the grief for my father change. It doesn't stay the same. And we let it go. We don't hold on to it. I thought it was a beautiful teaching from Ajahn Sumedho. When my dad died, I was teaching a retreat a small retreat at Santa Sabina where many of us had practiced and taught. And I was actually, I was just about to ring the bell and Susanna, who's the nun there who takes care of that facility, opened the door and I could just see, I, she would never open the door during a meditation like that. She didn't open the regular door, it was a different door and she looked at me and I just knew, I, I knew it had to be. I was actually, to be honest, I was hoping it was my dad and not something with my daughter or my wife. That's really how my mind worked at that moment. I got a little scared that it could be something worse than my dad dying. And of course, you know how these things have a certain synergy sometimes. I'd been teaching all morning about how the difficulties are not a mistake. You know, the problems are, they're not a problem, that they're the building blocks of our practice. And you've all seen that. You've seen it in the month or two months that you've been here. We've had lots of difficulties. Everybody, nobody has not had difficulties. And as you learn to allow them, stay with them, be kind to yourself in the difficulty, not judge yourself harshly for whatever it is, you start, practice starts to have this strength. And I believe that these building blocks of sitting moment by moment and uh, hour by hour 
are the building, are that death and grief are on the same continuum. Hopefully we start with some smaller difficulties, some smaller building blocks, not the most difficult ones, but that we learn to allow experience, to receive it, to release, to be very, very kind to ourselves, because this is a world of loss. There is nothing that we can hold on to. Have you seen that? It's, it's so interesting, the teaching on attachment and non-attachment, because there's nothing we can hold on to. <laughs> the idea that we're attached is mostly an idea. It's a very deeply ingrained idea. Mm. And death is a very powerful realization of that truth, that there's nothing we can hold on to. So as you've sat here and let everything come and go so far, everything, one of the benefits, one of the things we see is that our idea of self is not so limited. What we thought we needed, actually we didn't quite need in that way. How we thought it had to be, well, it wasn't. And we're okay. Who we thought we were, what we were going to get, who we were going to become, doesn't happen the way we imagine. And we're okay here in this moment. When the Dalai Lama is asked, how do you know if your practice is working? He says something like this. He says, check, you know, every five or seven or ten years and see if you're a little kinder, a little more open, a little more compassionate, a little more aware. Don't check every 15 minutes (laughs) or every sitting or even every day. Really, if you want to check on this retreat, Check about three or four weeks after you've left. See how the retreat went. And so for me, in some way, I got to check with my grief. Because my mom died about eight years before my dad. And that was uh, the first big personal grief that I'd experienced in terms of somebody dying. There have been other kinds of griefs. Um, you know, because we experience loss all the time. I remember my grief when my street theater company broke up and the whole scene, the causes and conditions that had set the stage for that kind of vanished as the 60s vanished into the 70s and turned into disco music and other weird things. And, you know, or just places that we've loved that go or we go that we've lost. People, relationships, we've all, we all know that loss. There's not anybody here who doesn't know that loss. And so my mom had died about eight years ago and then here my dad died and I got to practice with it. 
and again, this is like as, as good as it gets, I think, in terms of grief, meaning not complicated, not um, out of the ordinary. Uh, he'd lived a fine life, but still I was struck by the disorientation, the, the tenderness that comes, the pain, the missing of him the kind of exquisite delicacy of loss itself, the helplessness. You know, it's like, you know, you could, I could feel the, oh, it's daddy, not just my dad. You know, I can feel the part of me, the really young part. And this kind of amazing disorientation, like life is not the same when you really feel that loss. The world is not the same. Reality is not the same. And so I saw myself feeling a kind of uncertainty, of uh, uh, unsureness, uh, confused. Um, and I was moping around and, and really allowing it like we do our practice here. Not trying to change it, not trying to push it away, not judging myself. I shouldn't be over it or better. Or, You know, the, when my mom died, I remember I'd 